0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking climate change and the human response. What is the science of climate change and what are the impacts of it, both short and long term? And then How is society set up to respond, both through mitigation and adaptation? Our guest is Dominic Boyer, a professor of cultural anthropology at Rice University, where his focus is climate mitigation, adaptation responses. He's also co-host of the Cultures of Energy podcast, which brings writers, thinkers, artists and scholars together to think and talk about the Anthropocene. This is a little bit of a departure from traditional episodes, but I really wanted to explore climate change, given its profound importance for the energy and commodities sector. As always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Dominic, welcome to the show. Uh, so happy to be here, Paul. So we're talking about climate change and ultimately the human response to it and the challenges therein let's I guess I really want to start on the science and, and understand, make sure we're all on the same page about what we mean by climate change, what's behind it, and what are the the, the, the challenge, what's the challenge it poses. So can we start there? Can you just give us the sort of the one oh one on climate change itself?
1: Sure. And I, I'll give it to you, Paul, with the proviso that I'm a social scientist rather than an earth scientist. So you know, I'm going to I'm going to give you the kind of the big picture soft focus on this, whereas I'm sure you can find other folks who could really get down into the details of it. But essentially. There is climate variation. There's always been climate variation probably throughout the Earth's history. But we're living during a time when, especially since the Industrial Revolution, and some scientists would argue really since the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, we have seen a spike in greenhouse gas percentages within the Earth's atmosphere that is sort of equivalent to the Earth putting on a heavy sweater over time that's trapping in solar radiation, that's heating air. Much of the warmth, interestingly, has been absorbed by the world's oceans, something like two thirds. But uh, we're feeling the added energy within the Earth systems in the form of uh, more intense periods of rainfall and drought, cyclonic systems intensifying, in ways that are unprecedented and you really have to to get into an area of science that I find fascinating called paleoclimatology to really understand where we are now because the earth hasn't had this much carbon dioxide in its atmosphere for about 2 million years so really none of our no humans, no, none even of our hominid ancestors have ever breathed the air that we're breathing right now in terms of its particular chemical composition. And that's really striking when you think about, okay, we're really moving into some unknown territory, not for the Earth per se, because there obviously have been other periods in the Earth's history that have seen these kinds of concentrations of gases and warmth, but but really for our experience as a species so that's why the adaptation question you mentioned is so significant and I'll just say that you know where we are today with you know somewhere around 420 parts per million carbon dioxide is equivalent to the Pliocene period Uh, that would be the most recent time two million years ago and you know we both live in a coastal city or a near coastal city it's it's important to recognize that at that time in the pliocene the average sea level on earth was about 20 to 25 meters higher than it is today so obviously we're nowhere near that in terms of the actual sea level increase but we could think that in a sense we have set in motion a set of vectors that will lead to that level of sea level rise eventually uh, if mm. we allow things to sort of persist as usual so i don't know if that gives some just kind of a big picture some thoughts on the Um, um, But maybe a more specific questions, Paul.
0: Well, so one of the things that there's one thing that I think that I would to clear up, and and this has been a conflation over time, in some cases, I think, uh, intentionally between climate change and environmental degradation. They're, They're two very separate things, right? Whether we're talking about pollution as a result of creating batteries for the energy transition, that is very different to... These couple of gases, methane, carbon dioxide, that create this uh, warming effect.
1: Right, and you know that link is a complex one, as you say. And it, in a way, Paul, I sort of prefer talking about the Anthropocene, which is a category that earth scientists have developed recently to talk about a number of different interrelated and overlapping vectors rather than simply climate change or global warming because I think you're right that global warming on its own doesn't get at the totality of the issue that we're facing. But for example, when when Earth scientists, geologists talk about the Anthropocene, they talk about um, the way in which a series of human-led processes have left records within uh, the sedimentary, formations of the planet's crust. So for example, one of those is plastics and the fact of the ubiquity of plastic agglomerates uh, across the world is a sign of human activity uh, on on a planetary scale. Likewise, the signatures associated with nuclear bomb tests are are a signature that they look at. And so when you think about it in, in this way, Climate change is, yes, it's a cause of a lot of things. I think we could talk about it as a cause or a, as is often put, a sort of intensifier of certain things that have happened forever, like floods and droughts. And hurricanes. Yes, these have existed forever, but they're becoming more intense because really of the the, the amount of energy that's that's being sort of newly harnessed within the Earth system. So, mm-hmm. you know, a hotter ocean, right, produces bigger cyclones. Uh, this there's a simple way to explain it. But that's not the whole part of the story. You're right. There's there's certainly a lot more to it. So when we think about the our waste problem environmentally, is that related to climate change? Well, yes, you could say carbon dioxide and methane are kinds of waste gases, but we also have to think about plastics, right? We have to think about single-use products. There's a lot more to the story than just climate change.
0: I guess what I'm getting at in some senses is between those two evils, climate change in some ways has been seen as perhaps the more benign, but is actually the most existential threat that we face outside of human cause, you know, world wars and nuclear, you know, apocalypse and so forth but climate change is the one where because of as from my reading we these effects are quite non-linear right so uh, there's a, a recent report out by some scientists who says you know actually four degrees wouldn't be too bad but it was pointed out in the article i read that well minus four degrees the last time the planet experienced that the whole of northern europe was under A kilometre of ice as a result you know uh, so a lot of this this is not a non-linear this is a non-linear product right and secondly you know whilst a lot of people think about climate change and we think about yes you know okay is Houston going to be underwater what's going to happen to my property value right actually before we get there because of the rapidity of the change you get you know, we're all dead anyway, because you've had ecological breakdown and the vast majority of our food production, in fact, 99 point, you know, whatever percent, relies on natural systems, whether it's bees for pollination, whatever it might be, The the rapidity of change could disrupt those cycles and suddenly we can't generate the food that we need. I mean, like, so I think sort of the, what I'm trying to get at, I mean, I don't know whether you agree with all I've just said, but there is this sort of dichotomy between environmental degradation biodiversity loss and you know poisoning the planet compared to the the extremes that climate change could generate you know albeit over a couple of centuries right i do i
1: do agree with what you're saying paul and i think that part of the problem is we're you know as i suggested we're moving into uncharted territory you know even paleoclimatology only gives us so much information to understand what we might be heading toward and when you look around the world, you know, just this summer, I mean, you, you can look at the dried up Lake Mead and the Yangtze River. You can look at catastrophic flooding in the American Southeast. You can look at the whole city of Jackson, Mississippi, now without water. Uh, you know, uh, there were Pakistan, infrastructure. You know, yeah, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Pac- Bangladesh. So you look across the world. This is the world at one point two degrees centigrade warming. Right. Do we really want to know what it's like at two, let alone four? Uh, I'd say no I mean I'd say that we've seen enough to know that this is not heading in a good direction that again you know the types of crises and catastrophes that yes have, humans have coped with you know for their entire our entire existence as a species are becoming intense and unpredictable in ways that are quite frightening especially the rapidity of the acceleration and so that's where you say nonlinear that really resonates with me right that we don't predictions about the heat wave in the UK recently, was predicted as something that, oh, that'll probably not happen until 2040 or 2050. And yet here we are in 2022 and it's already with us. So you begin to wonder, you know, what else else might be awaiting us around the corner? And I'm glad you brought up food security because I think that is one of the crucial issues. Famines, forced migrations. I mean, you could imagine our already complicated and sometimes chaotic world getting much, much more so were, for example, Massive crop failures to hit certain parts of the world, and what's happened historically is that you know people have suffered and died. Yes, but they've also moved uh, out of desperation. And so, as you begin to think about large populations moving across the world, take the case of Syria, for example, which is you know uh, there were a lot of things going on in Syria, but what what set that whole powder keg off was uh, a series of crop failures that that. Earth scientists have suggested could be linked in their severity to climate change. So, yes, I, and I think this is precisely why we have to think both about mitigation and adaptation in very serious ways today.
0: Yeah, and we're going to come on to those two levers that we have available to us. So there's two things I want to cover before we move on to that in your work. Where are we in terms of awareness? Is, you know Is awareness accelerating compared to 20 years ago? Can you just give us some sense about globally where we're at?
1: I feel as though, and the United States is not the best place to look at, because I think the U.S. is a very special place, as are most countries that I would call petrostates. In other words, places where a large portion of the economy is is linked to oil and gas or fossil fuels more generally. Uh, In those countries, I think there is a kind of inbred resistance to having to um, acknowledge climate change. As the problem that it is, uh, with the kind of devastating potentials that it has. In countries that I've spent a lot of time in, whether those be Mexico, which is itself a petrostate, if a very kind of vulnerable and possibly failing one, but even in Mexico and rural areas, I've spoke with farmers, campesinos, who are very aware. They could see the climate changing in their crop cycles. They could see it in the the rainfall patterns. They could see it when 500-year-old buildings were washed away in flash floods. I mean, it's not a secret that to many people across the world that something is changing. I think the real question is what is the response? What is the appropriate response? And that does vary a lot, again, depending on where you are in the world, what social class you belong to, how much you're invested in the status quo organization of the economy. I think there are a lot of factors there. But I would say within my lifetime, I would say between, let's say, the early aughts and today, there has been a massive uptick in awareness. It hasn't always translated in a willingness to action. But again, if we take our own experience here in Houston, when I moved to Houston in 2009, uh, it was in the middle of uh, a sort of counter-cycling. It, the economy as a whole was down, but oil and gas was doing fairly well. Uh, There's a lot of wealth. Uh, I did not hear climate change on many people's lips as an issue. But after that series of 500-year rainfall events in the mid, let's say, between 2015 and 2017, culminating in Hurricane Harvey, you know, the largest rainfall event in the history of the continental United States, that really changed things. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, Paul, but I feel like in the past five years, there's probably been more serious thinking and planning about climate in Houston than in the rest of its history put together. And so I take that as a pretty encouraging sign of here, sort of in the heart of uh, the petroleum industry, the petrochemical industry, if even here we are beginning to contemplate significant changes to our way of life and our prep- preparedness for for future challenges, I think that that's overall probably a good sign that we, awareness is probably getting near where it needs to be. Readiness for action uh, and especially readiness for bold action is probably still where we see the lag.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess to get a little bit philosophical and talk economics for a moment because I think that's the next piece to put into place is okay so you've got this growing we're perhaps starting to move beyond the argument of is this real? Um you know and and start to tease apart and again I I I talk about this conflation of environment of pollutants polluting with with climate change because I think in that a lot of companies by denying climate I don't know. I might get myself in trouble here, but I would suggest that there was kind of by conflating those two, you could you could get away with both, right? right? You could weaken EPA laws or around the world. Um, Because there was science was unclear on on climate change. Well, the science was very clear that if you dump a load of lead or arsenic into waterways, wherever you are in the world, it has serious consequences, and we've covered that in in the trade offs that, for example, China made to to grow its industrial base and to to capture much of the production of energy transition. But that aside, exactly, this is one of those. This is an externality. This is the the tragedy of the commons, and also overlaid with the fact that the consequences of this are have historically been at least you know dare I say in the lives of most politicians today um which are you know particularly here in the U.S. are, are an older set than they have been traditionally yes you know the consequences aren't going to be felt so you've got not only this tragedy of the commons which I'd love you to explain and also secondly you've got this kind of unforeseen timeline and typically humans only come into action when the when like you said hurricane harvey real immediate effects going on like we're seeing in europe today which is sparking real action
1: right so there's, a lot there sorry yeah no no i was going to say there's certainly a lot there but a lot of a lot of good thoughts and you know i do think the economic question is paramount and You know, I don't know, Paul, how much you remember this limits to growth report that came out in the early 1970s that 50 years ago, I think, almost to the day uh, that really raised some very, very provocative questions by modeling with, you know, relatively primitive computers for their time, but still a pretty good a pretty good piece of software overall modeling what would happen if the business as usual economic system of the planet were to continue to grow as it had, to use resources as it had, for population to expand as it had over, over a period of, I think they, they modeled it out to the year 2100. And in fact, all of the models are, all of the models that didn't involve some kind of technological salvation, uh, which we could talk, come back to later, whether that's a realistic uh, uh, idea or not, Um, All of those models had within them one of two major scenarios, and it really depended on on our energy resources, and as you probably know, energy resources were being underestimated at that time. We thought we had less oil than we did, and that attitude persisted through the kind of peak oil moment of the early aughts, mid aughts. Uh, Now we know that we sort of have all the oil, (laughs) we have ways of getting oil and gas, right? Uh, They may have higher levels of externalities, but we're not going to be, we're not going to really fail, uh, the economy won't fail for lack of, of fossil energy. But what happens then when you when you sort of allow more fossil energy into the economic mix, you then come up with a waste problem. And that waste problem is, well, as we said, you know things like plastics and single-use commodities and all of that, but also really significantly uh, the waste of greenhouse gas emissions and all the externalities that are involved with that too, so all of these challenges. And so it's interesting that we've known for 50 years or we've had a model for 50 years to talk about the problem of unchecked growth, endless growth growth but seemingly you know we've more or less resisted learning the lesson that we might actually have to rethink this so it's interesting to me and I think this is probably an area of provocation I'm not sure how far we want to go into that you know as the the domain of ecological economics is becoming more lively in recent years and I would say just in the past few years you're actually seeing now concerted campaigns uh, at degrowth, at at sort of developing a model of sustainability that's based upon not across the board reduction of growth, but targeting areas of, you know, basically being much more mindful uh, about areas of growth and areas of contraction. And that's something that I think generally speaking is anathema still to our dominant economic model, which is about growth and about producing more value through growth. So you know i I'm starting to get stuck in that little loop there, but I do want to bring in this this problem of growth because I think that's the aspect of economic reasoning and, and institutions that I think is really at the core of this
0: yeah, definitely triggering um but the, <laughs> I, but but again just that 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 sort of that pricing externalities i mean it is very challenging right and and these are and but at its root is this idea of who pays for it. Right um and why not use it you know in a competitive global economy those who are driving towards efficiencies win right those who care less about this win so it's it is a you know a, that is a real challenge to humanity right the fact that as you say our, our current incentives on an individual company-wide on city-wide and then on the statewide are you know, anathema to the idea of solving a global challenge. Right.
1: That's right. And therein we could get to the tragedy of the commons, right, which is basically the idea that when a a group of individuals pursue their own self-interest, they deplete common resources through, you know, what sort of uncoordinated uh, individualistic action. And you know some people believe that this is sort of fated. It's in the nature of humanity to do this. But where I would push back, and here I'm gonna put on my anthropologist hat if you don't mind, Paul. (laughs) Because one one of the advantages of anthropology is that it's a comparative science that looks at human cultures through time and across the world. And when you do that, you begin to realize that the modern Western Euro-American way of life, its attitudes, its habits, its its economic reasoning, are quite an outlier to general human trends. In, in fact, they're a pretty stark outlier to the way most human societies and civilizations have managed over time. Now, that doesn't mean that all these other civilizations have solved massive problems. I think we can look back through the historical record and see that there, you know, they, it is suspected that a great many civilizations have collapsed because of prolonged environmental problems. I mean, this is- The Maya. To, the yeah, Maya, even the Romans, say, and the Romans and the Romans. Sure, right. you could find yeah. and you can find examples throughout history, but um, the difference might be that we do have uh, more sophisticated technologies at our disposal. We do have uh, greater knowledge at our disposal. So we ought to be smarter, if not wiser always, about how we approach these issues. But what I'll say is that you know something. I'm always reminded of something my my thesis advisor Marshall Solon said, who was a well known economic anthropologist of his day, and he wrote a little piece called "The Original Affluent Society," which is a, a kind of a classic. I think it's collected in a book called Stone Age Economics. If anyone's interested in looking it up, and the basic argument of this of this piece is by looking again at at historical cases of human cultures, that the general pattern that most human groups have used in terms of their resource management have been, and also their labor, let's say, have been periods of intense activity to create a little surplus that they then expend over a period of time before they go out and work hard again for a bit. So if you can imagine something like a, a sine wave of labor activity where there are periods of intensity where you build up a little surplus and then you expend that surplus and sort of enjoy it before you eventually are forced to go back to work again. The difference between that model and I think the model that all of us experience in the modern the modern world is that we sort of feel as though we have to work all the time to accumulate surplus, right? It's a very, it's a very Max Weber, the German sociologist, would say it's a very kind of Protestant way of thinking. Like you're mm. supposed to accumulate wealth, but never really to enjoy it or spend it. The idea is just to sort of sort of uh, you know sort of hoard it like a dragon might. But and-
0: we also face is it is it Stevenson's law where our expenditures rise along with our income right so, you know, exactly. the power of modern marketing is that you know you're always you know we are, we're, we don't actually accumulate these surpluses. we are we are incentivized we are pushed there's peer pressure to spend right you know um to demonstrate your income levels you know you can't be uh anyway we're, 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 well it, yeah.
1: it's it's just to understand that this is kind of one cultural mode among other possibilities that i think we need to get our head around and the point being, ultimately, that this idea of um, the tragedy of the commons, that we're all going to kind of go out and individualistically pursue our own self-maximizing goals uh, to, the, to the common detriment, is, I think, not a bad way of describing what's happened you know, in, in, in our world. But it's not necessarily an inevitability. And in fact, you know, there really are quite a few examples of ways of being human and being happily human that don't involve this, this kind of relentless pursuit of more. Yeah. Uh, we, so, might to, we might so, have to
0: turn TikTok off. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah. as you say, you know, the, the
1: the whole world of digital culture is only reinforced these trends, right? Individualization through our screen interfaces, you know, constant, you know, attention seeking activity, the little, you know, dopamine bursts. I guess if that's the right neurotransmitter, the little bursts we get from from seeing things liked on our feeds and so forth. I mean, all of this is sort of reinforcing that that kind of tragedy of the commons lifestyle. I think, and um, you know. Uh, Without sort of romantically suggesting that, you know, uh, that the the past was so much better than the present, uh, I do think that there are ways of imagining futures that don't necessarily have to repeat this present infinitely into the future, mm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. No, it does. Uh, yeah, I've got a, an upcoming episode on solar flares, and uh, oh. it just, it, it, uh, it makes me wonder whether we're even going to be around um, right. in yeah, the that, kind of society that we have right now in the next that, 100 years. I was going to say, that's a big X factor, isn't it? <laughs> that's a, yeah, it's, that's a pretty terrifying story, but you know, that's a teaser. Right. But, okay, so right, so there is these, the, the twin levers we have available to us are obviously mitigation and ad- adaptation. Yes. And let's start on mitigation because a lot of your work has also been around from a from an anthropological standpoint, you know, this is also we're still in the world of trade offs. We're still in a world where these things can be challenging to implement. Perhaps we can start there, and perhaps you can weave in the the studies that you did in in Mexico yes. um, around efforts on energy transition there as a as an example of some of the complexity that much of many of our listeners listening right now are, are managing today and tackling today as they are leading their organizations through energy transition as well
1: right, so I do think there's some lessons so this is research that I did several years ago together with my colleague and partner Simony Howe, and the focus was on Uh, the wind power sector in the isthmus of Tehuantepec in the southeastern part of the state of Oaxaca, Mexico. So what was interesting about this is that within a space of probably less than about five years, you went from having just two very small publicly owned demonstration parks to what for at least it's in its time was the densest concentration of onshore wind parks anywhere in the world um you know above i think it ended up being somewhere around 2.7 gigawatts of installed capacity within you know an area of only really you know a few hundred square kilometers so so this was a lot of wind in an area that had previously been really quite a Agricultural region, quite a poor region, a very indigenous region of Mexico. And a lot of the wind parks were built on either forcibly privatized land or on land whose communal um, land regime had been disrupted uh, in one way or another. Sometimes because there were just factions within particular villages that felt different ways about whether they should be leasing land for wind parks. And I think the. if you know to cut a long and complex story short i think that the main lesson we learned from this is that it's quite possible to do rapid renewable energy development in such a way that it feels to many people in the region that it's quite extractive. Uh, People used to talk about wind parks much in the same breath as they would talk about mines, for example, which was a real tell. They saw them as being yet another case of transnational forces coming to exploit resources without really having a, a lot of interest in what communities themselves aspired to, like what were their own development goals, and also not really being just very aware about local political structures and dynamics so that sometimes a lot of money would be deposited in the coffer of a mayor for example who then would you know use that money as a weapon or a lever to uh, extract favors and political dependency from others around so that it really you know where there were potential I think there always is for distributed energy to to sort of accomplish some goals of um, democratization and, and sort of engaging more people productively in energy landscapes, here it was a case it felt like it sort of reinforced social inequality, it reinforced political hierarchy, so that at the end of the day, a lot of people were left feeling well, you know, we no longer have our farms, now we have these wind parks, but actually, you know, the poor people are sort of poorer than they were, and the rich people are richer, but they're not reinvesting the money in the communities, They're putting it into their second homes in Mexico City and Huatulco and so forth. So in a way, you know, one could argue there's a bit of a tragedy of the commons vibe to this too, unfortunately. And, you know, what we did, it was an NSF funded project. And so what we put in our project report was sort of sketching out a different model for for the resource development that we thought actually would have reduced conflicts and reduce the inequality around these projects and hoping that, you know, perhaps at some point in the future, someone would listen to us, but, you know, we're academics, you never know, right? Probably
0: not. (laughs) Yeah. The HC Insider Podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants, To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Well, I mean, you know, there is the environment right now where actually there's a broader balanced scorecard, right, of ESG. Right being applied to some of these things where this, you know, this comes in. But there's, there's a couple of interesting points there, isn't there? Because there's one, which is this fascinating idea that the energy transition is not as lucrative as, as extracting oil and refining it, right? So historically you'd turn up to a, you know, you go to, it's still going on right now, right? You go to a Central American country or wherever it might be, an African West Coast country and say, okay... We are going to exploit your resource, but you know we, this is going to make oodles of money. And right. I know this is very simplistic and, and, and so forth. And we'll build this facility here and it will employ X number of people and there will be some return to the community, at least in an idealistic sense. The difference with renewable, solar and wind, especially solar, is that it's quite land intensive. Yes. But once it's there, it does not generate... A lot of jobs these are very simple it's a technology it's not a it's not a chemical processor of fueling you know so it, you've also got that to balance out as well which is okay this marginal land is now being taken over by something which is relatively unproductive for the local communities
1: Right. So I do think this this labor issue is really important. And the one caveat I would say, because this is apropos of certain debates, I think in the United States, let's say the idea that, you know, wind power or renewable energy is putting coal miners out of business and so forth, and coal miners coal mining was historically a very relatively lucrative, although dangerous job and so forth. But we also have to remember that, you know, in some of these extractive industries, automation itself has put most of their workers out of jobs, right? It's you know, coal. Coal jobs have mostly been lost to, to robots and machines rather than to, say, wind parks. Uh, but I do think the point is correct that um, the, the qualities of labor are different, the intensities of labor are different. So, for example, in Mexico, the jobs that were created for the most part by this wind rush were construction jobs, but they were fairly short term. I mean, after the concrete had been laid and the turbines had been raised, that was it for the most part everything else would take place with you know uh, having people come by and inspect the machines from time to time replace them as needed so there was a kind of a more of a technician level uh, job and and many of those jobs were valuable to communities um, but there was also a feeling as though in this case at least that the managerial level jobs the white collar jobs the truly good jobs were mostly going to people who were coming in In from outside city yeah Yeah, Yeah, or from spain you know
0: yeah yeah well we would we were we were doing these searches back in twenty thirteen fourteen for you know what was uh, at the time seen as a great opportunity for european and u s utilities to get in there and develop That's right. um uh, solar and wind wind capability and a lot of them were you know had just shut up shop in Chile which had you know gone through its own right. challenges um yeah and there was a lot of wealth created for a short period of time but it also i you know a couple of things came in. One was obviously a lot of the bids were, dare I say, undercut by Chinese companies, and also then you just saw a regime change in in Mexico right. that completely put it, you know stalled everything. Right, all of these bids, a lot of them put on hold. Then they were subsequently investigated for bribe. You know, as a yep. yeah. <laughs> yes it was a challenge it, it was a, a messy a messy, messy situation
1: and you could say i mean on the one hand it was a success that so much wind was brought on grid so quickly but i think that the the way it was done actually in some ways kind of killed the goose that lays the golden eggs because there was so much contentiousness and so much political attention to some of the negative externalities over time that my feeling was that eventually people decided they didn't want to invest in Oaxaca anymore because it was the feeling was it was a hard place to do business, right? And they might have moved yeah. on to elsewhere in Mexico or elsewhere in the world. And, you know, again, a lot of renewable energy, or rather there are a lot of resources all over the world that are needed development. But then you do look at these estimates about kind of just because of the growth in energy demand, and even with very rapid addition of renewables, we still could be in a situation in the middle of the 21st century where we'd have a dominant fossil fuel or sort of fossil energy uh, system simply because you know the growth is outpacing even a very aggressive installation of renewables and, and i think that's between a real realistic- energy oh,
0: security yeah. and energy transition you've got to pick energy security right in the short term at least you know from a political standpoint yes um, yeah but that, that that's my kind of question right is zooming back out so you know i think that identifies a few of actually this is this is not an easy process even with the best of 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 tailwinds yeah Do you see a sufficient emphasis and even just the capability of, you know, societies to mitigate sufficiently for us to avoid two, three degrees increase in in global temperatures?
1: Well, you do see these wonderful stories. For example, this summer I was working on a a coastal sea level uh, resilience project in Hawaii and we happened to go over to the island of Kauai for a few days and really we're just blown away by what they have done what the rural electricity cooperative there has done in terms of going from their first solar installation i think it was in 2014 or 2015 to now the island is powered 70% by renewables and and on many occasions is running 100% on renewables they've done wonderful things with you know grid forming inverters and you know all sorts of evidence that actually you can accomplish a renewable energy transition relatively quickly. Now, of course, Kauai is only 70,000 people, 120,000 with the tourists. So it's not a model for a nation, perhaps, but just showing that so much can be done in such a short space of time with, you know, an attentiveness both to local interests as well as to international energy markets is really quite impressive. And so I do, I do have, I'm not a, I'm not a pessimist about mitigation at all. I think mitigation has a very important role to play. But the reason why I brought up degrowth earlier is because I think that if mitigation is not paired with some kind of reassessment of the growth imperative. And and that doesn't mean depriving the Global South of its opportunity to modernize and to have the luxuries and conveniences of the North, but rather to think carefully about how, especially those of us who have really benefited from living on the, the sunny side of that hill, for many centuries might now, you know, need to reassess our own profligate use of energy. And it's not everybody. I don't even think it's the, the average citizen that's really guilty of this. It's a, a fairly small number of people in corporations that really do drive, you know, most energy use when you look at it, whether it's, you know, flying internationally or, you know, resource extraction. This is not something where, you know, it's really fair to blame the average citizen entirely Although, you know, yes, we can all do our part to, to try to, to live within our means, so to speak. Um, so I think you know, it's, uh, it's complicated, but you know, I think that the flip side of that question that you're raising is also about, you know, mitigation alone is not gonna do it. So we do need to really think seriously about adaptation because the changes are coming faster and in a nonlinear way, as you mentioned, that, that means that we can't sort of wait for mitigation to save us, even though I think it's incredibly important that we keep sort of our efforts up on that, on that front
0: yeah it's 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 really interesting the framing as well isn't it because you know we've got the european energy crisis going on at the moment right. and europe has done a phenomenal job of developing a renewable capability just unfortunately either you know not fast enough to avoid <laughs> exactly. the, russia's turning off the gas having a profound impact um but also it's could be framed in the sense that that reliance on renewables and not developing their fossil capabilities has caused this, right? You can look at it either way, and it's really a case of timing. It is very challenging. Um,
1: yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that you know I tend to be a, a, a sort of glass half full on that on that energy crisis. Yes, I think it's going to be very difficult, and it'll be interesting to see how much black backsliding into coal and and you know LNG there is over time, but I also think it might just be the kind of kick in the pants that Europe needed to kind of get off its own rather complacent attitudes about this and, you know, uh, you know, Germany did marvelous things in the early days of what they called the Energiewende, right, the sort of solar energy revolution, uh, and then sort of, you know, cooled their heels in a lot, a lot of ways for the next decade or so. So maybe this is what will finally push them to get more aggressive in meeting those targets, as I think, you know, the relationship between in this case you know fossil fuels and military aggression is is laid bare for all to see
0: yeah very interesting yeah we, we, i wonder what uh when certain files get unsealed in 50 years, <laughs> yes. we discover about that, uh, that potential complacency. I'll leave that there. Yes, please. But I, I've, I've certainly heard some comments from my, uh, from my connections in Europe. OK, Paul, so let's Paul, move we can on only touch
1: so many third rails in one podcast. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going to get assassinated from all ends. But OK, so <laughs> let's talk adaptation. Yes. So first off, before we, you know, let's just talk about human physiology. Mm. You know, at what point do we start not being adapted for the environment that we're in? How, how, you know, can humans survive at a six degrees Celsius global average rise?
1: Well, I mean, it really depends then on what kinds of climate control air conditioning are available to the human population, I think when temperatures get above 50 degrees centigrade as they do flirt with in some parts of the world including you know Pakistan central Australia where they flirt with that level of temperature especially combined with humidity for for sustained periods of time you do begin to sort of get to what's known as the wet bulb syndrome where the human body can no longer cool itself it can no longer cool itself on its own our sweat mechanisms are not sufficient to keep our internal body temperature from rising to the point that you get uh, organ failure. So, and if you're interested in just a chilling and brilliant depiction of this in science fiction literature, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry of the Future opens with, with such a heat wave projected in the future in South Asia and what the effects might be. And it's a really like kind of unforgettable, um, literary rendition so I recommend it to everybody as a as a you know just just for that chapter just for that opening alone it's well worth reading the book itself is fascinating for other reasons too but so you know that's where we are physiologically you know if we get to the point where these heat waves are going to intensify not everywhere in the world but some places in the world will become
0: uninhabitable And that recalls, frighteningly, your comment on, you know, the UK's heat wave and Europe's heat wave, and these things were meant to be happening in 20 years' time, not now. You know, is is that on the cards in the next couple of decades, do do you think?
1: And you know the thing that, that I'll tell you—the thing that floored me about that, Paul—and I'm, I'm, I'm making assumption you might have spent some time in the UK in your life. I don't know. And possibly, I, won't, yeah. I should make that assumption. Possibly. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, there were wildfires in the UK. Yeah. Wildfires. I mean, that's what blew me away. I mean, places in the world where they're not supposed to be wildfires, like you know, good old gloomy, cool, and wet. England suddenly have wildfires and so it's not even just the temperatures because I think it'll be a long time before we get to you know massive physiological challenges in Europe but northern Europe but I mean the fact that that between the heat waves and the fires and the droughts and floods that these combined vectors are going to create situations that are certainly not pleasant to live in uh they, they may be inhabitable still but places that where people's quality of life will clearly go down mm-hmm. right. Um, because of these these events that seem to be happening with again increased frequency
0: it strikes me because historically we are well we 're meant to be in an interglacial, and whenever right. we 've had these periods of warming so there 's one very closely associated with zero a d and sort of two hundred a d which is a, was it the roman Medi- Roman warm period when you see right. the rise of a number of civilizations in the in the global north at least. And then there's another one in the 1000 A.D. to I think it's like 1250 or so, and you see, you know, a, an efflorescence in Europe, European culture, you know, a, a removing coming out of the Dark Age and so forth. So historically, these have been quite they've they've been a boon for civilization. I guess what we're yeah. saying here is this is this is much more than a, than those mild warming. Uh, and the rapidity is vastly different, right? And 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 we come yes. back to that kind of nonlinear effect.
1: Yeah. No. Really. I mean, when you think of you know something like two thirds of cumulative greenhouse gas emissions have occurred within our lifetimes. I mean, it's it's so so much has happened so recently that again, it's really hard to say that. To compare what where we are now or what we might be facing in the next couple of centuries to what happened, you know, a thousand years ago, because they they were much more modest ups and downs. Uh, but the fact that even those modest ups and downs, you know, profoundly changed, you know, the course of human history. Right? Think of, um, you know, shortly before I, I think that period you're mentioning in the late the late medieval warming was a period of genuine prosperity in a lot of ways. Uh, populations grew, and you could argue sort of return to pre-Dark Ages times, but then there was a a plague, uh, well, the Great Plague, but even before that, a Great Famine in the early decades of the 14th century together that whammy, you know, killed off something above 50% of Europe's population and, mm. and massively reset things. And, you know, I'm not saying that the Black Plague was directly related to some kind of climate it's change. It certainly weakened that. populations
0: that allowed it to yes. spread faster. There's has exactly. books yeah. on that. And,
1: you know, the, the, famine, the famine sort of set it up and the famine was part of the cooling process, you know, of the, yeah. the long-term uh, sine wave of climate. So I think that there's a great deal to be concerned about. However, you know, I do think that you know, again, I tend to be an optimist, which is probably strange to think about when you're dealing with climate as much as I am. But you know, you do look at the even these out of these periods of tremendous uh, challenge and misery, like the 14th century comes, you know, the Italian Renaissance comes, you know, a new newfound interest in technology and humanism that, in some ways, opens up a whole new chapter of of human history. And we could argue about its legacy. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good. But the fact is, you know, we have shown the capacity to react to great existential challenges with developing sort of new, new tactics and strategies uh, to defense ourselves. And mm. that's, that's something that's encouraging. I mean, my, my worry, Paul, and I'm sure you, this is not, you know, lost on you. I'm sure you have the same concern is that we, we're not just going to be defensing a small portion of the world's population. Um, in, in a kind of uh, trying to maintain through ex- extraordinary expenditures of energy sort of air conditioned comfort, whereas great masses of people are, are allowed to live in misery at the mercy of, of uh, increasingly chaotic weather system. So, you know, my hope is that somewhere along this process we'll also learn some humility and equity, but I know that those are things that are sort of almost as unimaginable
0: perhaps <laughs>
1: you know, as, as climate change itself.
0: I don't think actually you you can have a partitioned world in that sense, right? And I think we're already right. seeing you know the, the, what the United States is going through in terms of political divide. A lot of it is driven by the impact on the global south and the pressure on you know with the fact that not in the, the U.S. is connected to it. The issues right. at the border that are driving a lot of the challenges inside the United States are tied to ultimately. There, there is a climate change backdrop to that, as well yes. as you know, in the cultural ramifications. And you just can't, unless you are an island, you know it'd be a pretty bleak sci-fi movie right, right. I, I just don't think the option is there to to have that bifurcated world but we're getting very far away from commodities and people perhaps hear, oh getting, yes it, okay my, well... my interest in my interest in history and and so forth but <laughs> i guess let's talk adaptation you know to you know what does yeah. the world look like in terms of sea level rise what's still around what's not and you know what is what does adaptation to that mean and then you also threw in a phrase earlier on saying you know this tech salvation i mean is this where this comes in or this can you take us through that kind of adaptation journey
1: so uh, you know first of all sea level rise is probably not front of mind for most people and i think that's a K because even in coastal cities, there are many coastal cities that are not going to be significantly impacted by sea level rise for decades, if not centuries. Uh, and it, it may be in some cases millennia. It is a slow process, but it is a process that historically there is quite a lot of glaciological and, and uh, geological evidence to suggest that uh, the loss of the ice sheets is a nonlinear process, that it goes through periods of rapid acceleration and plateauing. And we don't know exactly how fast those accelerations are and I think that the concern is if some of these Antarctic and ice sheets begin to destabilize that things that we thought might have taken centuries to happen could happen within decades and then that becomes a whole nother area of worry but let's assume that there's a kind of a roughly linear state of things in that case you know the cities that are facing the greatest um, threats are the ones that are already sea level under sea level like uh, New Orleans or Charleston South Carolina Or the the ones, and there are, you know, interesting cases of this across the world, the cities that are built upon porous geology such that the water comes up from below. And this is the problem with Miami is you sort of can't hold the water out by a dam or a dike or something like that because it's coming up from beneath. And I've talked to coastal sea level experts who say that, you know, cities like New Orleans and Miami are practically indefensible when you look at it in the long term. It'll be very difficult to imagine these cities sustaining themselves uh, into the 22nd century without some kind of major reimagination of the urbanism. In other words, living with water in ways that they don't currently. And you could, you know, you could extend that to cases like the Netherlands as a whole. You know, these folks are extraordinary hydrologists and engineers in terms of how they manage water over time. But when we're talking about above, you know, a couple of meters of sea level rise, it's impossible for some place like the Netherlands really to sustain itself either in the way that we understand it today. So it's, a, it's an exercise in what we call deep time thinking. Paul, it's thinking with geology rather than simply in human history, because uh, we have to think that you know geological forces have been set into motion that will play themselves out according to geological speed. Uh, an example of that is the fact, as I mentioned, we haven't had this much atmospheric carbon dioxide since the Pliocene, when we know the sea levels were about 20 meters higher. And then the question is how long will it take to get to 20 meters? Well, it probably will take, honestly, it'll, it'll probably, my guess would be several centuries, if not millennia, for that to happen. So in that sense, you breathe easy and you say, well, it's not my problem anymore. However, uh, if it is a kind of relentless, steady pace, we will begin to see all sorts of other things happening. For example, in the case of Houston, the first thing to go will be the barrier islands in the Gulf of Mexico. And once you take out the barrier islands, you know, including places like Galveston, suddenly Houston becomes much more um, vulnerable to storm systems moving in. It doesn't have that natural defense um, scheme anymore. So Houston itself could be more vulnerable to its cyclones because of even much more minor levels of sea level rise. And
0: it's those cyclones, uh, and as right. we record right now, there's a, a mega typhoon in you know off the coast of Japan of just extraordinary right. power. It's those yes. cyclones that are going to be that are really going to drive the impacts here alongside, you know, the food production, just a lot of other, in other words, a lot of other societal impacts are going to get us first before uh, we start worrying about exactly. property prices in in Manhattan.
1: But you do see these effects, like I'll say from from our experience in, in Oahu this summer, I mean, you're seeing, you know, already in a state that has its own issues with with poverty and and sort of rural disconnection from Honolulu, which is the major urban center on the islands. Uh, you, you know, there are these little tiny two lane roads that connect most of the communities around the coast, and those roads are being undermined by coastal erosion and beginning to sort of fall into the ocean in places. That's the kind of sea level impact that's going to happen a lot, a long before we find ourselves underwater. But it could be very, you know, existentially damaging to people. When you think about, well, this is again in Kauai, but that rain bomb that happened in 2018 where they had 50 inches of rain, Paul, 50 inches in 24 hours. That's like yeah. Hurricane Harvey in one day. Uh, and it washed out the roads and cut off several communities for a period of almost two years that's the kind of thing where you begin to think okay uh, now we're seeing how this can again as you say in conjunction with other vectors uh create a, a very different kind of life world than the one we've enjoyed up until now
0: yeah which again i mean all of this comes back essentially to Politics in the in the clearest sense of how we organize and run and choose to run our societies and what we value and what we don't is, and we're seeing it in Houston. I don't right? know. This is very much a yeah. global audience, but you know already significant efforts are going into um, better water management. You know the Ike Dyke, all these different things, and you know yeah. you've seen it like the Thames Barrier has been up for you know forty years or whatever it's been. You know, are we starting to see societies better plan for this? for the just the intensity of events weather events you know increasing is there that awareness in that at the moment or are we still sort of living with infrastructure policies that don't you know that reflect a, a 500 year storm that's now become a, a an every year event
1: i would say on balance yes and again this is it, this is on the on the, the side of optimism i would say If you look at the world in aggregate, most countries now are moving in the right direction. Most communities are moving in the right direction. Are there outliers? Are there sort of, you know, uh, counter offensives, you know, uh, from people who Deny what's happening, or who are so invested in the status quo that they just are willing to sort of ride the ship down. Yes, you know, obviously we've seen uh, recent administration in Australia, for example, but has changed, and with the change came a major policy changes in this in this domain. And so, you know, I think that the outliers will probably continue to be there. The areas of resistance will continue to be there. I don't doubt. But as a whole, and I think especially in Europe and Asia. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, more concerted and sort of sustained, you know, leadership in, in managing um, environmental energy transition and environmental adaptation. So that I, be, I think that when we're thinking of this as a planetary problem, we are moving in the right direction. It's just we could we could certainly do to be moving faster. And if we really were all pulling in the same direction, as we learned in the pandemic, we can get, we can accomplish enormous things relatively quickly.
0: Final couple of questions. Sure. Yeah. Is there, so just sort of putting your your futurology hat on. Uh, I love to, that hat. You know, I'd love to know kind of where you kind of predict this thing going. Just before I, we go there, is there this sort of deus ex machina event for potential where someone invents a, a carbon suction machine that's efficient and we can just solve, you know, is, is that tech salvation a Possibility and I and I and I say that with an often an example that's brought up is sulfuric acid, right? Is, is acid mm-hmm. rain? We invent the catalytic converter and it's done, right? Or it's not done, but right. it's sold. I mean, is that a potential out there, you know, or, or is that really a crutch that we're all relying on so we can carry on our normal lives?
1: I think, unfortunately, it too often is a crutch in the sense that, yes, wouldn't you love it if somebody solved nuclear fusion, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't we love it if that were. A breakthrough were to be announced and we actually would be on a pathway to a safer, reliable, yet cornucopian energy supply uh, that uh, would provide all, all that we needed more without the various kinds of externalities that concern us today. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yes. I just don't think we can, we can assume that it's going to happen immediately uh, and or that it will happen at all. I mean, it may take decades more uh, work to get to the point where this is something that's feasible technically and also affordable Mm. uh, economically. Whereas we know that we have the technologies already that we need to decarbonize the global economy, we have them, we know what policy frameworks work, we need the sort of the will, and and when I say will, I mean not just the political will at the top, although that's obviously important, but also the social will, as populations so demand these changes. And that's where it becomes a, really a cultural problem, a civilizational problem even. And we have been for many, many centuries really accustomed to a life that one of my colleagues calls energy without conscience. Uh, this idea that we can use energy without thinking at all about either where it comes from, what those externalities are, or what the externalities of the use of the magnitudes of energy we've become accustomed to are. And again, I'm speaking mostly of the global north here because there are many parts of the world that they get by and very little. And I, we should always acknowledge that this is not, it's not Haiti's fault that we find ourselves where we are today, right? It's really countries like the United States and Europe that have really driven, um, been the point of the spear. You know, I, I am not unoptimistic uh, about technology. It will contribute more, as you said, you know, uh, could, um, uh, some kind of uh, affordable and effective carbon capture be developed that prevents us from having to resort to something like geoengineering, which I think would probably be not a very good idea, <laughs> my personal mm-hmm. opinion. Um, but uh, yes, that could be great. It could be all tools in our toolkit to accomplish what we need to accomplish. But given that we we have what we need already, I, I'm often somebody who finds myself advocating for the simpler solutions that are more ready at hand. And if I can say one more thing about Houston in in this connection. Um, there's a great story that um, KG Asakura, who's one of the principals of Asakura Robinson, a great landscape architecture firm here in town, told me, and he told a story about a guy named Art Story, who was a legendary engineer who worked for the Harris County Flood Control District. And he, Art, had a habit of telling of saying, you know, if everyone in Houston would just dig a two by four ditch in their front lawn, they'd put Harris County Flood Control out of business, right? If everyone would just basically create what we call today a rain garden on their property, that would be enough of an offset in terms of water detention to pretty much reduce catastrophic flooding. And when you think about something as simple as digging a hole, which requires a shovel, you know, at best medieval technology, right? Uh, to, to, to do what we need to do to save ourselves Whereas we we tend to think more about, well, we need to put a lot of concrete into this. We need to build the dike We need to have massive, you know, channelized bayous and things like that. Uh, Sometimes the simpler solutions are the ones that are worth pursuing and the ones that have such a low barrier to get involved that a lot of people can get involved in the project. And it becomes something that I think is... um, But it it hasn't happened, right? I mean... Well, well, it hasn't. But has it not happened because we're too reliant on engineers to solve our problems? And maybe we're reaching the point where we, the engineers can't quite do it on their own. Right? Yeah, yeah. They need help. Well, it they also, need help from a broader
0: movement. It kind of makes, you know, one of the things that sort of strikes me, quite, you know, is the simplest thing to tackle climate change today is every dollar, every piece of focus goes into taking coal. Oh, God, I'm talking about you know, yeah. connections in coal. Sorry. But if you just took coal power generation <laughs> offline. Right. You know, rather than those dollars going into hydrogen or whatever it might be, that's sort of a, a speculative future potential. If you just if the planet focused on this simple idea of just getting rid of the worst offenders that have an right. outsized contribution, you could really make a difference. Right. But, you know, that's not as you, you know, how all the incentives and the societies that have been you know, how they're structured. Right. It doesn't work like that. And the same same idea is no one's going out and digging a two by six hole in their front lawn. At least not in my neighborhood but
1: really the idea is sort of you know having a having an approach to this that is um... Listen, if technology comes and, and saves the day, that's great, but just not uh, sort of relying upon the superhero to save us, rather sort of rolling up our sleeves and getting more involved. And I think that's really what adaptation is about, is about all of us, and really maybe mitigation too. It's about all of us becoming more mindful about energy or sources, developing what I call a kind of greater energy citizenship, energy literacy, uh, and also you know taking, uh, taking uh, our future into our own hands to the extent that we can by being uh, responsive and responsible uh, for these environmental changes and challenges. And I think that is something that, you know, if, if we're having trouble mobilizing around it now, I think in the future as more and more storms and droughts and floods and so forth begin to undermine our quality of life, I think we'll be more and more willing to make those changes would be my guess, yeah. even in the United States.
0: Well, I, we'll leave it there in the interest of time. It's been a really fascinating <laughs> discussion, and I would encourage- uh, It's
1: been fun, Paul. Thank you. Yeah. I and would... listen, in editing it, you can blame any any sort of uh, <laughs> yeah. errant I'll, comments about I'll, the coal industry. Just blame them on the anthropologists. I'll put a
0: trigger warning fine. in the intro. Um, <laughs> but no, I think it's been a fascinating discussion. I wanted to do this episode because I just think it's, it's interesting just talking it from a an anthropological standpoint. You know? the the response is both mitigation and the the challenges around that, right? These aren't simple things that many of our, uh, the listeners are tackling today. These aren't simple things, you know, in terms of the broader stakeholders and implementation and so forth. And also just the challenge that we're facing our own human nature um, in, in, in this one. And it's the confluence of a lot of things that we've always struggled with, the tragedy of the commons, externalities, and also things that happen in in the long term right even our you know the way we've set up our our societies are you know are very short termist in terms of incentives for our politicians but anyway that's a whole new thing but you can discover conversations like this uh, done much more effectively than this one on your podcast right the cultures of energy where you i think you're on episode 210 and you've got writers thinkers from across the spectrum talking about the climate change environment and all of these issues so i would really encourage listeners to to go and uh, and listen to to your podcast
1: yeah, and it, it is a podcast. Thank you so much for the plug, Paul. It's a podcast we've been working on for several years now. Um, we had it as a weekly podcast for four years, and it's more of a monthly podcast. But but still, we really enjoy talking to, as you said, artists, philosophers, social scientists, business people. Sometimes uh, we'll talk to all sorts of people who are sort of engaged in the energy and environment space. Uh, the idea is kind of if you will, it's a bit of a kind of uh, uh, therapy session where we kind of talk each other through, encourage each other's to sort of be bold but also we try to like have a kind of a humble and sometimes playful attitude because this could be really heavy dark material as you know and it can just bring people down to the point where the people are so depressed they don't want to do anything thinking about climate futures Uh, and I think that's the worst attitude is like we have to understand that this future will be complicated and complex it'll have but it'll have joys as well as terrors, right? It's going to have good things as well as bad. And what we want to do is build the infrastructures to, to, for as much good as we can down the road.
0: Yeah. Well, I encourage uh, Alicens to check it out. And, um, you know, this has been a little bit of a departure from our standard content, but really enjoyable. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time, Dominic. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.